Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy Podcast in-season edition with PLL Chaos head coach Andy Towers. We're talking playoffs. We watched the first round and really fired up to talk about the quarterfinal matchups. AT, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How you feeling? Feeling good. Getting over this cold. Doing a little bit better. Really enjoyed the weekend. Got a chance to watch some great lacrosse games. Um, and uh, there was uh, obviously the Mother's Day Distraction took me away, but I recorded them and was able to get back and watch some other games. So that was great. How about you? Um, I had a buddy of mine in town, my buddy Jevin. Remember Jevin? Uh-huh. Yeah. So he turned 50 or turns 50 next week, but he came back from San Fran and was in town uh, Friday and Saturday. And then we had a sixth grade lacrosse game on Saturday afternoon where we lost a heartbreaker to John Hess's. Uh, ride team by a goal. It's two years in a row they've broken our hearts. Um, and then we played Darien yesterday. Uh, I watched a little New Canaan Darien high school game on Saturday afternoon. RD was in town. Nice. Uh, yep. Went to lunch with Hanford and RD Friday afternoon. And uh, I guess Salisbury beat Brunswick. So it was just a Spread yourself too thin weekend, right into Mother's Day. Where, um, Carleen got to pick what we were gonna have for dinner. And so she wanted to pick salads and pizza. And she wanted the salads and threw a bone to her family who wanted pizza. And so we order the pizza and then she goes to order the salads, but the salad place was closed. So in the end, she got screwed on Mother's Day with her Mother's Day meal. And uh, we're looking for future Mother's Days to make up for it. Nice. Well, our Mother's Day, my mother Mother's Day present to my wife was Saturday night at the Pepsi Center Eric Church concert. Sick. It was. It was pretty good. So, um, all right, well, let's get into this. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Um, there were some uh, awesome games, um, and uh, let's let's go let's dive into the first first matchup of the weekend: Loyola Syracuse. Um, Pretty sure I picked Syracuse in this one. What did you pick? I picked Syracuse. So we hit the nail right on the side on that one. Um, Pat Spencer just played exactly how you kind of wanted him to play. <laughs> he used his legs. He used his quickness. Uh, he used physicality as a, a secondary portion to the way he dodged instead of the slow post-up game. Right. He kind of mixed it in, and it was brilliant. 
Um, and uh, Loyola was too good. What, what were your thoughts on that game? Just exactly that. You know, great to see Pat Spencer utilize his speed. And when he uses quickness and speed to set up his physicality, and he ends up being, you know, 6'3", 205 pounds or whatever he is, the leverage that he gets from speed to physicality is just too much for really any one defender to cover him. And as we all know from four and a half years or four years of watching Pat Spencer, if you slide to him, he's going to make you pay. And certainly going three and six in a huge game versus Syracuse documents that. I just thought that the overall skill set of Syracuse and the fact that they really are, you know, a group of players was just going to prove too much to Pat Spencer. But credit, you know, Loyal and their entire team, certainly Jake Stover with 17 saves was huge. Um, you know, but I think this is obviously the formula that Loyola rode in the beginning of the season. And I think it's the formula that they're going to need to ride through the rest of the playoffs. And even though they're going and playing an unbelievably talented team in Penn State, um, you know, Penn State doesn't have a defender that's going to be able to cover Pat Spencer. Loyola is going to score goals on them. You know, really, it's going to be Bailey Savio at the X versus Gerard Arcieri and see which offense is going to get the ball the most. And if if one faceoff group has, you know, 65% success, that I think is going to be what will write the ending and the outcome to the Penn State Loyola game next weekend. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think Penn State's defense is is um, is uh, pr pretty solid, but I agree with you that the, the matchup, the difference between the Loyola Syracuse game, the Loyola Army game, is that Syracuse doesn't have uh, a Certic to play defense, yeah. a six four yeah. beast that you just don't have to slide to. Right. Yeah, he might get beat for goal here and there, but you can basically rely on him. Mellon is a great one on one defender, but he was just overpowered at times, and it just. Yeah just made it impossible to play defense in that game. So uh, credit to Loyola, um, credit to Syracuse. I mean, they, you know, they, they, I thought they had, they did a good season, had a good season losing one of their best middies. Um, but, uh, but moving on um, the um, Yale Georgetown game, you know, Yale jumped out on them, you know, six or seven, seven, nothing and Georgetown fought back and, you know, really showed uh, guts to be able to get themselves, make this a four goal game in the, in the, uh, in the third quarter and, and, and then make it ultimately a three goal game. But Yale's offense, just too good, uh, too, too many face-offs, um, one. And um, thoughts on this game? Just exactly that. You know, too many face-offs, one by TD Erland. He goes 31 for 35. I mean, who the hell does that? That's just, it's absurd, really. And uh, 29 ground balls. What's that? 29 ground balls. I mean, that is just ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I think you do have to credit Yale, but you also have to credit Georgetown. I looked down in the middle of my sixth grade game on Saturday, and it was 7-0 Yale with eight minutes left in the first quarter. You yeah. know, and the fact that Georgetown got it all the way back, I think they got it to, you know, 13-10 or 14-11. They, they got it to within three goals speaks to – you know, the toughness that Kevin Warren's team had. And, and no surprise, Dan Becerra leads the way 8-1. and one. You know, I was really happy when the Inside the Cross Media All-Americans came out and he was a second teamer, I believe he was a second teamer. Um, you know, was definitely one of the first three teams. I think he was second team, um, but deserved it, you know. 
Um, really impressive that they were able to claw back, but I'm not surprised that Yale found a win the game and it sets up the desired rematch with Penn, even though it's in the quarters. Frankly, I was hoping that this was going to be a game that was played on Memorial Day in the final, but I'm just glad we are getting it again. Round three. Round three. Uh, Bukara with eight and one. What a beast. And he really, like, he took Chris, Chris Fake to the rack a few times. I mean, they, they took Chris Fake off of him. Worries me a little bit about Yale. Honestly, their defense is worrying me a little bit because I felt like they didn't look great against Penn defensively and they didn't look great against Georgetown defensively. I mean, you, when you win that many faceoffs and you've got that efficient of an offense, you're definitely going to be able to win the game. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but their defense um, has been struggling a little bit as of late. Normally, they've, they've been so sound. Uh, Penn Army, Army, you know, Joe Alvarez, just does an unbelievable job with his crew this year. Um, and um, they just, they, they went down early, but they just kept clawing back, making it a game. But man, Penn is just playing great. And they're playing great in all the phases of the game. Yeah, Penn, we've said it for a few weeks, Jamie, that Penn has, you know, they have all the pieces to win the national championship. Uh, this, the, the selection committee did not create an easy path for Penn though. You know, for them to draw what, you know, may have been the toughest first round game out of all of the seeded teams, uh, you know, but they stepped up and even though Army did get it, you know, 10-8, I think they got within two late and it looked like they maybe have a chance to, to knock them off, you know, Penn gets what they needed in order to close it out. You know, Reed Junkin, nine saves, eight goals allowed, Simon Mathias, you know, just a commercial four and one kind of seems like he does that all the time. Sam Hamley, again, not another great statistical game, but he's such a force and he puts so much pressure on defenses. And then obviously Goldner, Rosner step up where they need him. You know, I just, I, I'm really impressed with Penn, but now they have the unenviable task of having to play Yale again. And I actually think the pressure now is on Kyle Gallagher going into this game and yep. while it was on TD Erland the last two times that these teams met in the regular season and then in the Ivy championship and Gallagher splits with TD Erland in the regular season matchup and then dominates him in the Ivy league championship last week. I think that puts some unnecessary pressure on Gallagher this week going into this game, seeing that it's such an important aspect for Penn when they play Yale in order to try to win this game. And he's got to come out he's got to win you know, 50% again, and it looks like he's going to do that, but now he's got to go out and hit the shots, as Tiger Woods would say. Yeah, I think Penn, Penn is playing as well as anybody. I think they're playing a little bit better than Yale, but I agree with you. I mean, if Yale gets the ball, they're going to score goals, no doubt. I do think Penn's zone that they played last week against Yale was, was a, a great mix, and to be able to have really solid man and really solid zone is tough to do, and they're doing it. Um, and so uh, it's going to be an unbelievable rematch. So let's talk about the last game of the day. Virginia, Robert Morris. No surprise here that Virginia wins this game 19-10. to 10. Um, I think we all knew that going into this game that Robert Morris did a phenomenal job to get back to the NCAA tournament, but that there was just too much firepower in, um, in, in athleticism between the lines with the University of Virginia over Robert Morris. Did you get a chance to watch this game at all? I did. I watched it, and, you know, it's all the usual – characters plus Mikey Herring shows up and throws in six 
you see Conrad with five and oh, you know, usually he's good for two points a game for him to step up and score five has got to be uh, great for the Virginia locker room and great for the coaches to see that kind of production, you know, to get a combined 11 goals from two guys that aren't necessarily part of, uh, you know, the offensive power that Virginia has is got to be really good for them. It gives teams another guy that they have to worry about and Mikey Herring, all the usual customers, um, you know, for Virginia, I'd say that probably Ian Laviano going one and one is, is probably the replaced goals that Harry and Conrad were thrown in. But, you know, really the story I think for Virginia is just the emergence of Matt Moore as their playmaker. He's, he's been the guy that's been the key to their run here and seems to bring everybody together, gets everybody on the same page and to be able to do it in a way that, allows their defense to play with full energy each possession. Um, you know, this, this team, this team can flat out outscore you. Um, you know, an interesting game would be Penn state and Virginia in the final. If both teams make it there, I think frankly, that's what's going to happen. Um, but that could be a game that, you know, Las Vegas Lions could have that over under plus 30 goals score very easily. Yeah, I mean, two and seven is what Moore had, and he's just been pouring in the assists. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's got like 40 assists on the season now. Um, and uh, he's a great dodger, and he was a midi, you know. Um, you know, they, they, he's kind of thought of as like, all right, let's put this midi on attack, and then all of a sudden he's like as good of a playmaker as there is. Um, exactly. He's, you know, he's, yeah. it's really interesting. When, you, when I think about when I graduated in 1989, there was five poles allowed the next year the rule change came and there was, there was, there was no more horns on the end lines. There was um, four, four poles and two shorties. Um, and there was the, 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 the count to get out of the box and stuff. They started to speed the game up and make it a little bit more offensive. And I always was like, man, I wish I would have played, you know, when there was, when there was four poles and two shorts, because it makes a really big difference. Like when I was a freshman, I would get a pole you know, um, right. as a mini. And so that was a big difference and scoring went up. This shot clock era has made scoring, you know, look at the points people are putting up right now. It is absolutely so different because they all had the ability to do it before, but they just, the reins are off now. So you're just scoring goals and it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. It really is. It really is. It's a whole different chapter to college across now and i think the next chapter will be when they shorten the shot clock from 80 to 60 which i think is going to come at some point the philacrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the jm3 video assessment tool there is no question that video is a critical part to player development one way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today. So, moving into Sunday, Penn State, UMBC, um, you know, credit to Rymo and UMBC for getting to, you know, winning – fighting at the end of the season, winning their conference tournament, 
upsetting Vermont in a great game, but really they were running into a buzzsaw with Penn State, and uh, Penn State's offense is just absurd. It is absurd, and it doesn't hurt that Gerard Arcieri wins 25 out of 27 faceoffs. You know, not only are these, not only is the shot clock becoming something that is revolutionizing the scoreboards across the country, it's also this extreme faceoff success. Uh, you know, is something that the game has never seen before. You know, for a long, long time, winning 70% of your faceoffs on the season was sort of that magic number where it was just really, really hard for anybody to average a winning percentage of 70% or more. It happened very, very infrequently. And now we have, you know, what, three guys or four guys at that number or above, somewhere between 70 plus and, and 80. You know, that's really, it really sets the stage for these offenses to play with a lot of confidence, to feel like they can take risks, not only to beat the shot clock, but, you know, also knowing they're going to get the ball back after either team scores. I mean, that's just what a luxury that is for these offensive players. No doubt. Uh, next game was Maryland-Towson. And I only had a chance to catch the end of this game. Um, but, oh, my God, what, what a play by Jared Bernhardt at the end of the game to tie that thing up. Um, you know, no timeout call, transition, not much time left. They knew they were going to have about 20 seconds to clear and get a shot off. And sure enough, Jared Bernhardt cuts the middle, coming across, has enough time to set his feet sort of in a transitional play and uh, bury a game-tying goal. Heartbreaker, dagger to Towson. Yeah, I mean, Towson, it feel, felt like lost this game twice. Um, you know, it, it, it felt like I was waiting for Towson to put the game out of reach. And sure enough, Maryland's, you know, makes a couple of plays, ties it. They go up by one. They go up by two. And then Towson, I couldn't believe it, dug down, comes back, scores three goals, capped by Sunday's goal to go up by one with like a minute and 50 seconds left or 30 seconds left, something like that. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, Towson just refused to lose here. I can't believe it. And then they get the stop they need. They get the, they get the clear, and they're sitting in the corner, and I'm watching the clock go down. And I can't believe that Maryland is not pressuring the ball, that they're letting it just get closer and closer to the end of the game. I just thought this is a mistake. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. You know, Sunday comes around, shoots it wide. Maryland gets the opportunity. They just never seemed like they were panicked, even on the clear. It just was like – throw it up, throw it over across, throw it into the midfielder, he runs it down. Like, there was no urgency. It didn't seem like it, but, but no. play, I was thinking, what, what – they just don't they look like they're kind of good with this outcome, this, this one-goal loss, and then they tied it up. And you knew as soon as they tied it up, they were going to win the game. And even though Woodall was able to come back and win the faceoff in overtime and they got the first look, it just kind of felt like – this was going to be Maryland's game again. And sure enough, they win another one goal game. You just got to hand it to John Tillman. His teams just are so poised and seem so unrattleable. It's like the old John Wooden quote, play fast, but don't hurry. You know, he would always talk about that play quickly, but don't hurry. And that's exactly what they did because if you hurry 
that's when it, 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 you choke, you choke it away. Right. Right. Pretty amazing. Uh, Duke Richmond, um, this, the score ends up being a little closer than the game really was, but credit Richmond, um, you know, they, they, they were able to score goals. They were able to ride the ball back a bunch of times. I don't think Duke probably felt awesome about their performance. Um, and I never, you never felt like Richmond was actually going to come back and win this thing. Um, but you know what? They made it a one-goal game. And uh, Dan Shamati, uh, unbelievable job. Um, and their team, I mean, they stepped up and they were scoring goals on, on a team that has, you know, thought to have had one of the best, have one of the best defenses in Division One. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, they exceeded expectations. Richmond certainly validated their appearance in the NCA. And I know they got the AQ and they ended up beating High Point, but so much was said about High Point not getting an at-large. And, you know, with the way Richmond played in this game, I think they also showed that they were deserving of being in this tournament. Certainly put a scare into Duke down the stretch, but I agree. The, uh, you know, the score was not indicative of the game. I felt like Duke was in control. And even though Richmond scored a goal with about 25 seconds left, um, you know, Duke sort of, uh, you know, real poised in, in sort of playing this game out. See, uh, um, Kate Van Raphorst runs the ball up the field, over the line, throws it down to the corner, and that was it. I, you know, I don't think Nakai Montgomery gets enough talk about being one of the best midfielders in the sport. You know, this, this is a guy who goes three and two in this game, five points from the midfield. You know, I, I, you watch what's going to happen. They're going to, they've got a, they've got a tough game this weekend, uh, you know, against Notre Dame. I wouldn't be surprised to see Nakai Montgomery come out again and get another five points. You know, he's, he's for all intents and purposes, a first team All-American midfielder, in my opinion. And even though statistically he didn't have that kind of year and, and, you know, he hasn't showcased that way. It seems like when Duke is playing on the biggest stage, He's the guy that's always been stepping up for them, you know, since he's been to Duke just two years ago. You know, last year he, he had a huge NCAA playoff tournament and certainly looks like he's off to that kind of start again this year. I think he's doing a great job of letting the game come to him too because, because he's and, – and I think, you know, that's a sign of maturity because he's not just like trying to make plays nonstop and shooting the ball nonstop. Right. Goals right. he's scoring, they were like kind of not playing him. He looked it off. He faked it away. Stepped in and hammered a ball, um, and um, you know his head's up. He's turned into a great feeder. Uh, so great win for Duke. Um, the nightcap. So you know we talked about the Syracuse Loyola game hitting the nail right on the side. I this one I hit the nail right on my thumb. <laughs> I picked Hopkins to win this game and to beat Duke. But um, in my own defense, though, I don't think I was factoring in Ryder Garnsey, who definitely made a significant impact in this game. No question. I picked Hopkins too. I mean, tough to not pick them with the way that Hopkins have played the last two weeks following two big W's over the Terps and with Notre Dame, you know, laying an egg at Virginia in the ACC championship. Yeah. Who would have thought that Ryder Garnsey was going to come back? With that said, even when I heard that Ryder Garnsey was coming back, I kind of felt like it wasn't going to help them, not because he's not – a great player he is I just felt like to inject somebody like that at this time of the year seemed like I don't know I just I just felt like it could potentially be more disruptive than anything else but I didn't realize that it sounds like he's been practicing with them 
He has. I mean, he was practicing when I watched them play in January, and he's just been down on the scout team, basically. Just, you know, keep. he looks sharp. Put it that way. He looked, listen, he looked really good, and he looked integrated into the team. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it was what? At the end of his sophomore year, he, he looked into potentially transferring and then came back and played, right, last year as a junior. And then this year, obviously – is unable to play for academic reasons, which I guess is Notre Dame imposed, not NCAA imposed, correct? Correct. And so um, I think Rob Pinnell had tweeted out, you know, how, how, do you, how do you go from ineligible to eligible? And I guess if the school is the one imposing the sanctions, then the schools can lift those sanctions. I, I just don't the know. The answer to that is when you're done with your classes, you're either eligible or ineligible. And that happens twice a year. So that's why. Oh, okay. Well, then there it is. Uh, it makes sense. But um, once your grades are in, you can be ineligible or eligible. That's why teams that, you know, there's, there's, you know, the teams that are quarter schools, like, you know, like you guys didn't have this issue at Dartmouth much, but at Denver, you know, uh, we, we lost our leading scorer one year in 2005 in March because he didn't go to any classes. And next thing you know, he was ineligible starting for the rest of the year. So the, the, the quarter schools really, really struggle with that. But, you know, in fairness, um, Notre Dame was playing very well before they even put Ryder in the game. Yeah. And then he comes in and he gives them a spark. And he gave them a looks that they weren't going to get otherwise. Yeah. But uh, Morrison Meyer comes in, scores four goals. I mean, you know, he had a great game and he hasn't been factoring in. They, they mixed up their lineup. You know, they got some new guys, some new blood in there. Um, obviously Costabile, you know, did what he does and Gleason wasn't as big of a factor as he has been, but he's a stud. I mean, I, I, I just think that this, you know, with, with Leonard being able to be an incredible competitor at the faceoff X with a, a defense that is consistent and, you know, can give you a final four sort of level of play, despite the fact that their goalie play hasn't been stellar. Yeah. And now they've now they can score goals. I think you know. I think that they're. I think Notre Dame is now a real contender for a fun, for the Final Four. I mean, I I would now have to pick them over Duke personally. There's no question about it. You know, with 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 Garnsey back in the lineup, and now you look at Costabile, Garnsey, and Gleason as their top sort of three offensive threats. You sort of feel like this Notre Dame game went. Notre Dame team has gone from a team that you know, we feel like sort of struggled to get to 10 goals. And now it's a team that you feel can get at least to 12 and maybe to 14 or 15. And with that defense, um, you know, and the success, like you said, of Charles Leonard at the X, it can really dilute what has been an average season for them in the cage. And, you know, this team, along with the other seven teams left in the tournament, any one of these teams could win the national championship and it wouldn't be surprising. You know, you kind of look at it and you think, all right, you know, can anybody score with Penn state? Um, you know, you look at how complete of a team that Penn is, you look at the face-off domination of, of Yale, you look at Pat Spencer at Loyola, you look at the five-headed monster of Virginia, you look at the two defensemen that Duke has, you just look at, Maryland's ability to pull out one goal games and then you got Notre Dame, you know, who we just covered, 
And you really could verbally defend why any of these eight teams could go on and win the national championship. It, it really is, um, you know, in terms of four or eight even teams, I, I don't know if it's ever been this close between what you'd consider the top team in Penn State and, and what? The, the, the lowest ranked seed out of the other ones, Loyola. And, and I'm looking at that game and I'm thinking, you know, Loyola could could absolutely go win that game and it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all. I think Penn State's gonna win, but but Loyola could easily go and win 14 to 10. <laughs> you know, they could. Right. And Maryland's actually the lowest seeded team. Maryland, I guess. Right, right. With Towson is the only seeded team to lose, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, this podcast is brought to you in part by Oxia Time, John Canaris. Um, is the former goalie at the University of Pennsylvania, graduated in 88, uh, the last time Penn went to a Final Four. Last time Penn went to a quarterfinal, in fact. And um, he has two major passions in life. Uh, one is his love for Penn lacrosse, and the other is uh, this new business he's created around a passion of watches. Uh, and so he's, he, he, he sold out of his corporate job, uh, took the payout and invested in starting a company called Oxia Time. It is really cool. Um, he, he basically goes over and creates Swiss watches, these five beautiful timepieces, $5,000 watches that he's able to sell for less than $1,000 because he's got no middleman and he's got no overhead. He's a small company and he creates these watches with these really cool, the beautiful watches. Andy and I both have one and they've got logos of your Ivy League institution, really subtly and elegantly placed. Um, mine, I got the little brown, I got the brown shield, and he's got the B with the Ivy, and I really recommend you guys check it out. Go to oxiatime.com if you wanna take a look at these timepieces. If you have a graduate, this would be an amazing present. We are so thankful for John for sponsoring this podcast, because all we do is kind of have a conversation that we would have been having anyways about lacrosse, and we're really fired up about that. Go to oxiatime.com and use a coupon code BRUNO100 to get $100 off. Each week, we have an Ivy League segment, and we're going to talk about our Ivy League flashback. I'd like to flash back to the 1990 Yale team featuring John Reese who was midfielder of the year that year, despite Paul and Gary Gate also being seniors that year. Right. Jason O'Neill, who scored, who had 99 points and something like 77 assists and set the NCAA assist record for a season while Reese set the goal record with 82. And by the way, John Reese was a midfielder and he scored 82 goals. That team was the first year of the new rules with two short sticks, and they exploited the ability to start really scoring goals more so than maybe any other team. They had great defense. Coach Mike Waldvogel, a defensive genius, uh, led the defense while longtime assistant Jeff Hacker had an incredible offense and really allowed John Reese, who wasn't, you know, it was a, he willed his ability, an incredible athlete, a two-sport athlete, a football captain, and the best player on the lacrosse team. And he would score like five goals off the ball. He'd score one or two goals off the faceoff, a couple goals off of man up, 
maybe a dodging goal, but he scored an incredible amount of goals off the ball. Um, so that's my Ivy League flashback. What are your thoughts? Do you remember that team at all? I, I do remember that team. In fact, oddly, I was the second leading goal scorer in the country that year with 59, right? And, and he, was, he had 82. I played attack that year. He played midfield, as you said, which is absurd. I remember one week, it was the third week in April, we played Dartmouth and we played New Hampshire. And I had six goals against New Hampshire and seven goals against Dartmouth or the opposite. And I thought, oh, well, I'll probably be Ivy League Player of the Week this week. And that same week, John Reese had eight against UMass and 10 against Army. <laughs> and was Ivy League Player of the Week that would deservedly so. You know, that Yale team was ahead of its time. You know, one of, one of the greatest pieces of fine print about that Yale team was the amount of game day two-sport athletes on that Yale team. You had John Reese, who was Ivy League football player of the year and Ivy League lacrosse player of the year, national midfielder of the year. You had Jason O'Neill, who was a hockey player. You had Mike Parentis, who was a football player. You had Brian Martin, who was a soccer player. Um, you know, the amount of two sports studs on their team that were also the best lacrosse players in the country that year was really something that was, you know, uh, taken advantage of by Coach Waldvogel. And it spoke to that team's will to win and will to get it done. And, you know, you can look at so many performances over that season, but I still remember them beating us 16 to 14 um, in the regular season. And, you know, I know that their season came to a disappointing loss against Loyola in what was one of the most epic games of all time played down there in Rutgers um, as a prelude to Loyola's loss to Syracuse in the gates in the final game that year. But that Yale team, not only well coached, but seemed like it was packed with men like Older men, not young guys that just finished being teenagers. No question. All right, so our Oxia Time Ivy League Player of the Week um, is a segment we do every single week, and, we, and, and we're, we're, we're so thankful to still have Ivy League teams in this tournament that are going to have a chance to uh, move on. And there's definitely going to be one moving on to the Final Four, which is pretty sweet too. Even though I would have rather seen this matchup in the Final Four, it's nice to be able to guarantee an Ivy League school in the Final Four again. So, Andy, who do you have for your Oxytime Ivy League Player of the Week based uh, on last week? Well, um, I got to go to Yale again, and I got to go to the faceoff dot. T.D. Erland wins 31 out of 35, 29 ground balls, as you said. Um, you know, it was a record-breaking performance by the best faceoff guy in the history of college across. Um, but with that performance – he ends up with another crack at Ryan Gallagher from Penn, who's been, you know, the guy that's gotten the best of T.D. Erland in their first two games head-to-head. -head. And it sets up a showdown where that piece of the game is so critical. Penn needs to just hold serve. They need to split at the X. If they split at the X, I think Penn wins again. Um, if T.D. Erland comes back, and gets the better of Ryan Gallagher, I could see Yale riding that success to beating Penn 
in their third match of the year, which as we know, it's tough to beat a team twice, let alone three times. But Penn looks like it is the better team, um, but they've got to go out now and, and they've got to do it one more time to make it to the final four. And I'm going, my, my Oxytime Ivy League Player of the Week is Simon Mathias, 4-1, and one, guarded by Johnny Serdic, who is the best defenseman in, in the country. And, you know, he, I thought, I thought Serdic actually played him well, but Mathias was able to put up legit numbers to put real pressure on Serdic, scored a really nice uh, sort of swim move, one-on-one -on -one goal off of a pick play. So I, I know the Serdic had a tough angle and I know he's your boy because he's coming to play for you, but yeah. Simon Mathias is an incredible athlete. That kid's got burst. The kid can change direction. He can feed it. He can shoot it. Um, and uh, I think he's part of the reason why um, I agree with you. Um, I think I think Penn is, is the better team, and I think that they've got a, an incredible slashing left-handed goal-scoring attackman in Simon Mathias, and uh, he's my Oxytime Ivy League Player of the Week. Yeah, he doesn't get enough credit, that kid. He's been, he's been awesome. He's been one of the best attackmen in the country for four years. You know, a, a, ever since he's gotten to Penn, he has – had this kind of success. And it's just really impressive that you look at Penn's season and to start the season 0-3, and it seemed like, <laughs> you know, where everybody else was like, Penn's done, they didn't have uh, even an ounce of that thought in their heads. And you got to hand it to Mike Murphy and their coaching staff and the seniors and – you know, for, for their careers to be coming down the stretch with a game versus their biggest rival, a team that's, well, a program that's broken their heart, you know, a lot in the last five years, and them to have an opportunity to beat them for a third time, the defending national champions. I mean, Penn is for real. Penn is, is absolutely um, – right there with any team in the country. And I expect an unbelievable game next weekend. Agreed. All right, here we go. So we already kind of did our picks, but Virginia, Maryland. I got Virginia. Duke, Notre Dame. I got Duke. I'm going Notre Dame. Penn State, Loyola. I got Penn State. And Penn, Yale. I got Yale. I'm going Penn. So Andy. A lot of fun doing this. Can't wait to see these games. Have a great week, and um, we'll catch you later. You too. All right. See you, bud. All right. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.